Hello, I'm your host, Bruce from Brolty. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with the leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Andy Wallington, System Safety Engineer, The Boeing Company, and SAE S18 Vice Chairperson, and Steve Belland, Retired Technical Fellow, System Safety, and SAE S18 Co-Chairperson. On today's episode, we'll learn about their experience as chairpersons of the SAE S18 Standards Committee and their work to ensure airplane safety. We hope you enjoy this episode. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here because standards play a critical role in aerospace. Without standards, we're not getting on airplanes and flying across the country. We're not going into outer space. Standards enable safe aviation. Andy, what is the S-18 Aircraft and Systems Development and Safety Assessment Committee, and why was it formed? The S-18 Committee was formed basically as a result of a request from the FAA to SAE back in in the 1990s. Um, And it was basically to to come up with um, some guidance for companies who were developing more and more complex aviation systems for installation onto aircraft. Um, as a result of, of that request, the, the Systems Integration Requirements Team, uh, working with a EuroK committee, WG42, developed ARP 4754, which was published in, in 1996. And, and then um, in parallel with, with that development activity, S18 started work on ARP 4761A, which was released concurrently with ARP 4754. Um, Those documents have been maintained since that time by S18 and and another EUROK committee, WG63, who we're working with up to this day today. And basically the the, the requirement for the the publication uh, came about really well uh, RTCA were, were developing ARP, uh, sorry, were developing DO178B for the safety process. Um, and it was realized that not only were, was the, the safety, not only was the software becoming more complex, the systems were, were becoming more complex. And therefore, there was a need for, for some means of, of assuring the development process. Steve, did you want to add anything on onto that? You were you've been on the committee slightly longer than me, so uh, maybe six months longer. Yeah, I've been <laughs> on the committee like nineteen years, and you're maybe eighteen and a half, right? Something like that. That's about right. Uh, yeah. yeah, which is a, a good share of the life of the committee. You pretty much covered that there, um, Andy. The the forty seven fifty four and sixty one first came out together in nineteen ninety six, and the committee's been maintaining them ever since. Steve, is it common for the FAA to have a request to develop a committee to work towards a standard? Is that a common procedure or is this a unique special circumstance? It was a little bit of both. Uh, Quite often the FAA does ask for standards to be written. And for a long time, RTCA was doing uh, a number of those. They still are. And SAE are probably the uh, predominant organizations for this and and ASTM in, in North America. And then EuroK is a predominant one in in Europe, and we collaborate. But then we have also been able to say we identified a need. There's we need guidance on how to do something, especially as the technology evolves. 
And so our committees or even SAE could just sit, put a, forward a proposal, a charter for a committee and start it up. And you don't need uh, the FAA or the Department of Transportation to request it. And they will, if we really have a good need, they'll be interested in joining along anyway. And, and they'll influence it somewhat to say, here's our take on it. We need this little bit or whatever added to it. Both of you gentlemen have sat on this committee for roughly 18 years. Steve, we'll start with you. What qualified you to, to sit on this committee? What, what's in the background that, that you're giving value back to the committee? Or is it just a passion? It's both, but I, I feel fortunate I've been able to contribute. I was invited to join the committee. I knew it existed, but the chair who also worked at Boeing asked me to join because he knew of my work in Boeing, working on the 777 and 787 especially, working through some of these very issues that the committee was trying to articulate. And there were a couple of particular issues that he said, you know about this, please come and help us uh, with this. And my chief engineer said, okay, but just go to a couple committee, couple committee meetings, don't make a career of it. <laughs> so it was only 19 years. And, and I've been staying with it, uh, working at, at least with it part-time in retirement. Andy, did you also get the call for help, sir? Or how did you start this journey? Slightly different uh, path to, to becoming involved with S18. I really started, uh, started my, my involvement with S18, I should say, started when I was working on another committee. When uh, I, I moved to uh, Switzerland in uh, the year 2000. I've been working in the UK for, for a UK company, uh, Ultra Electronics, and we we won the won the program to develop a, a propeller electronic controller for the Bombardier-8 Q400 airplane. Um, and, in, and in order to win that contract, basically, we, we needed to use the new standard, which had just come out in 1996, which was ARP 4754-4761. Um, so I went through the process of, of achieving Part 21 approval for my company. Um, and then we had to follow the, the process, which was basically dictated by the UK CAA. Um, and that included using ARP 4754 and, and 4761. As a result of, of that uh, obtaining the, the DOA, the, the Part 21 approval, I, I was then headhunted out to Switzerland to work for Pilatus Aircraft, who were going through the same process. They had to obtain Part 21 approval as well. And I was working on a PC-21 aircraft, type certification of the PC-21, a new aircraft that Pilatus were developing, which had a, an IMA, an integrated modular avionics platform on board. And RTCA and EuroK are just starting, or were in the process of starting up a committee on guidance for integrated modular avionics. And along with our S18 FAA rep today, and Kirk Baker, we, we were both part of the uh, the, the original uh, committee, SC200, developing that guidance for IMA. And we were both working on the, the safety assessment section in the document, and we therefore got involved with S18 WG63 to understand a little bit about, uh, about the work that they were doing 
in uh, in developing ARP 4754A. Uh, so that was my first involvement with S18. In 2005, I left Switzerland. Um, I was again headhunted to, to work for what's now part of GE Aerospace, but to work at Boeing on the 787 program. And it just so happened that SA, the next SAE meeting was in Seattle. So I, I managed to convince my manager at the time that I should, should go along to that S18 meeting. And that was where I, I met Steve for the first time and I met John, the, the chairman of, of S18. Uh, so that, that was how I, I got involved, really, through and initially through work with the committee on uh, DO-297, which was the, the SC-200 document. And then just because I happened to be in Seattle and, and get involved in, in that first meeting, and, and I wasn't, uh, wasn't released once I, I went to that first meeting. That was it. I was, I was part of the team. Um, and also part of Aerotech, which we can talk about later. But at that first meeting, um, Eric Peterson, who's now uh, now with the FAA, he he, uh, he was asking for for volunteers to help with uh, with Aerotech, which was coming up the following year. But that that was my introduction to S eighteen. What you did, Andy, was you rolled up your sleeves and you made a difference. You didn't sit on the sidelines. You, you joined the game. You rolled up your sleeves and you made a difference. And we're seeing that incredible work that's taking place in the committee. Steve, how is the committee impacting safety in aerospace? What it's doing is gathering industry's best practices. And we try and reflect that in the standards. And so that's why people from different companies, like the story Andy and I had, how we got involved. And, and the committee is also open really to the public. If they're interested, they could come, they can learn and see where they can contribute. But it helps safety by establishing a whole structure for development of these complex systems and to do the safety assessments on them. And you look at it and you say, gee, what could go wrong with that? And you look at what hazards could it potentially present to the aircraft and you work your way through it. You set up a set of safety objectives. Don't cause this to happen or make it extremely improbable. And then you work it into the safety analysis to identify what requirements you need to put into your system to help drive the implementation and verification. And with these product life cycles for these aircraft so, so long, decades long, that the people who developed it are going to be off to something else or retired or whatever, and other people have to figure out what they've left behind so they can maintain it, so they can keep cranking out the airplanes and keep flying them. So it's about building up this whole body of knowledge for the long term as well for this airplane, uh, any aircraft that you've got. So we help establish confidence in the development and the safety of the airplanes. Could you use the term, Steve, that the committee kind of acts as a knowledge transfer? So perhaps you or Andy mentor a younger engineer that's getting involved and you're passing on what you've worked on the committee to what they're going to do to ensure a smooth transition to a new generation? Is, is there that knowledge transfer being passed as part of the committee? Yeah, that, that happens. It's typically not a formal um, mentor relationship, but there's a lot of just working through stuff in the committee, in the sausage making, and you get a chance to share things and learn from one another. You know, even those of us who've been on the committee for a long time still learn from other people who bring in uh, new thoughts or new perspectives. 
Do regulators, Steve, have any impact on this process? Do they have a seat at the table saying, hey, we're the FAA, you have to comply with X, Y, and Z, or is this really great engineers trying to do really good, and then you go to the, the regulators? What does that look like? The regulators are part of the industry. They have a role that's different than, than what Andy and I may have had or others, but they are part of the industry. And so they participate like anybody else on the committee. And so they can't say, I'm the FAA, this has to be written this way. Um, no agency does that or nobody does that on the committee, but you build a consensus and you bring all these perspectives together. And, and a secondary benefit of this is that we can still learn from one another. I can learn from the regulators about their perspective. What are they going to look for? So that when I get on a program and have to do my work and show compliance, I can see it from their perspective and know where to, what my target is. And they likewise can see our perspective and understand what things to do are going to be valuable or what might be just academic, but not very valuable to improving the safety or the confidence of the aircraft. Andy, the, the, listening to this as, as an outsider, first thing comes to mind, you got a, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You've got a lot of egos. You have an airline manufacturer. You have a regulator. You Perhaps you have a, a GE engine manufacturer. Uh, Uh-oh. How do you get everybody to come to a general consensus and agree to something? Well, I could, I could say that's one of the reasons why it's taken us, well, now 13 years <laughs> to get from ARP4754A to ARP4754B. Um, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that is part of it. It's, it's that consensus opinion. If I can just piggyback a little bit on, on the back of, of Steve's last response to your, your previous question, the, the regulators are part of the committee. We have been very lucky that we've had, usually we've, we've had good participation from both the FAA and EASA, although we've had a couple of periods where EASA participation has been a bit lacking, and also from Transport Canada and from the Brazilian Authority. So we've had good participation and, and other authorities, to be fair. But that, what that means is, is also uh, we were able to, uh, to, to come up with a document in ARP 4754A which was adopted by both the FAA and EASA um, effectively just as it was, with, with just a one-page cover advisory circular saying, if you want to do development assurance on your, your aircraft to show compliance to, uh, to 251309, go and look at ARP 4754, because that will tell you how to go about doing that. So that's one of the advantages of being able to basically provide the guidance for, for industry uh, without the FAA having to produce additional um, re- uh, means of compliance uh, ACs or additional regulations. And is it fair to say that when a standard comes out of committee, you're allowing the, the members in the industry to innovate and move faster because there's, there's agreed upon standard? Very much so. One of the things that having an AC which basically cites ARP 4754 and, and by inference ARP 4761, 
That means that if you are developing a new aircraft or if you're, um, if you're modifying an aircraft coming out with a new aircraft model, you're able to use that guidance, use ARP 4754 and 4761 to, to show compliance to the FAA regulation without having to go back to the FAA in order to get agreement on the way that you are planning to show compliance. So you're, you're cutting out half of the process. If you want to use a different means of compliance, if you want to, to basically demonstrate a different way that you're going to show compliance to the regulation, then first of all, you have to get agreement from the authority with that method, that, that means of compliance that you're going to use, which is going to take you time and effort, obviously. And then you have to go through the compliance finding activity and, and, and show that to, to the authority. Yeah, I'd like to add a, a little bit to that in terms of the compliance finding. There is a bit you need to get approval with, typically with a, a regulator, is you're writing your own plan of substantially how will I meet 4754. But at a high level, you're in agreement, you're going to use that standard. But we try to not be prescriptive in how we write it. We try and keep the principles and the guidance general to let people innovate, to let people bring in new technologies or concepts. But there's a framework but then the the applicant has to write substantially how are they going to do it. So then your plan can be the basis for your compliance reviews later on. Steve, is there any real-world hands-on testing that happens as you, as you go through the standards process? I think in terms of do we do a prototype and try and apply the standard? Yes. Not directly, but what we do have from all the companies and, and organizations that participate they bring in their experience and especially their scars of where they have had troubles before and say, uh, yeah, we didn't do this and it ended up causing a big delay to our program because we didn't have our stuff together. Or it might be that we did this and it was a waste of time and we didn't learn anything from it. And so they have that experience. And so the standard does lag the industry a bit. Uh, it tries to bring everybody up to the same bar in the end, but at least in terms of the experiences that folks have, uh, I think that has served us very well, short of having a prototype to go do it. And these life cycles are so long to develop a system that it would further delay the document beyond uh, how long we've already been. One, one thing I will say is that there is an example in both 4754 and 4761 and getting that example updated and, and included in both documents, is, is that's been one of the, the, if you like, one of the long poles in the tent in getting these revisions out prior to the, prior to the enormous length of time in getting getting it through uh, through the, the formatting process. But that that basically is is a, is equivalent to, if you like, some means of of verification. Um, it's actually running through how you would follow. The, the guidance which is in, in the documents and it, it's giving you an application to show you how you would use it. Yeah. So if you like, it's all, I mean, I guess that's almost uh, almost a means of verification. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree, Andy, that it's um, like a hypothetical project that we've applied it mm -hmm. to. Yeah. And by writing the example, we might find, oh, that piece of guidance doesn't work. Right. Let's go adjust it way back in another part of the document. So it gave us a feedback loop. For that and we also did it because we know a lot of people especially types like engineers 
learn from examples um, more so sometimes than just you know the lesson that's written out in an, in the normative text. Steve, we can learn a lot from our mistakes. We can learn a lot from our scars. We get battle hardened. Some individuals when they go through those things. Nope, they clam up. They nope, nope, don't want to talk about it. Is there an openness on the committee? Hey, we tried this, but it delayed production by three months, and we don't want to do that. And here's all the lessons we learned. Is there free flow knowledge sharing that's happening from what you call the scars? To a degree, there is, but we're also careful not to talk about proprietary information in the committee. So everyone sanitizes somewhat what they've got to say, but try and bring out your points, you know, just to protect sharing what, you know, information a company might own and want to protect. Andy, I'm curious, how do these standards help avoid mistakes when an aircraft is is in the air flying? That's a good question. And again, it's the the object of of the exercise is is to be able to assure that that is not going to happen while the aircraft's in the air. And by by going through a detailed safety analysis, safety assessment process, uh, you're able to find out whether you need uh, one or two or three redundant systems. Um, and Steve, Steve will, will share probably better than, than myself his, his experience of flight control systems. You don't have one, uh, one flight control computer on the aircraft. You have multiple flight control computers. And that comes from the safety assessment process. You follow the, uh, the, the recommended process that's laid out in the guidance material in 4761, which tells you how to go through how to how to basically look for every function that your your aircraft has what the possible failure conditions are for that function for the various phases of flight and what the severity of that is and then from that severity classification you you can then dictate what the required um what what, what the required development assurance level is and, and then, then you get into the system architecture and how many redundant systems you may need or how many, how many, how many different, uh, different architectures you're going to need. Does that answer the question? I mean, it's a little, little bit obscure, but, but basically it does dictate the aircraft architecture, which hopefully will, will end up in a situation where you won't have that, that mistake, which will lead to, to a failure on the aircraft while it's in flight. There's, there's another perspective on, on mistakes too, is that, our systems will, you know, if we make them well understood, will helpfully reduce mistakes in flight. But in terms of mistakes that maybe the operators might make in flight, we try and minimize that, of course. And our standards maybe more indirectly do that because of what Andy described with the systems. And we do have an interaction with the operations organizations to say, we expect the system to maybe, if it fails, degrade in a certain way and then the crew to do something. And they might say, oh, well, we need to capture that in the procedures or make sure that our engineering assumptions are consistent with that. Or they might say, no, that's not quite going to work. And so you go back around to uh, refine that. So that puts a lot of validity into the operational procedures that they have too with an indirect tie. And, And the industry is also seeing we need to do even more of that. And so there are some interaction between systems and human factors is one of the things that S18 is looking at with other SAE committees as well, to make sure we classify hazards and don't have an unreasonable 
expectation of what the crew might be able to do in a certain situation. Yeah, I think just just on that on that point, we, we've got a subcommittee SATH which was formed just over a year ago now, and um, they work with another SAE committee G10 um, who have even more recently formed uh, a committee a subcommittee G10H, and and they're working closely with SATH on the the guidance for uh, for for the human factors relations relationship with the safety assessment process and that's as a result of some of the the recent legislation to come out from congress on how the human factors process needs to interact better with the safety assessment process steve it's been well known well extremely well documented that the aerospace industry does not compete on safety where certain other industries do compete on safety what was the basis for that? Because what, what you and Andy described, it, there's a willingness to work together to make the world's best, safest products. But what was the foundation for we do not compete on, on safety in aerospace? Well, I can give you my observations about it, but I wasn't part of the decision. But I guess part of the culture is that we don't really bash one another or, or rub someone's nose in something. But what we try and do is build up this knowledge in the industry through organizations like S18 um, and Working Group 63 to help raise the bar for everyone and share this uh, information on, on how to do this. And the, the level of safety that we need in the, especially the commercial transport aircraft is so, so high compared to most everything else in this world that there's this huge expectation of safety for the flying public. And so we have to go quite an extra distance for that. So for the most part, people don't see safety problems. Uh, There's a very small subset of instances that have happened, but we try and make that really actually all work out for everyone and, and be actually boring in the end. You've achieved your goal. When you get on a plane today, you know you're going to get to your destination safely. You don't think about all the engineering, all the committee work that goes into it. You get on there. Okay, so we land in two hours and 30 minutes. Okay, let's get going. Please get off the gate. We want yeah. to take off on time. That's right. all you care about. Yeah. Right. Very true. Right. And, and the public doesn't need to worry about what if this fails or what if this goes wrong because we've thought through all those scenarios and, and more. Um, just to make sure that the airplane's robust in case something does fail or if you get into some, you know, rough situation. Andy, the standards that have been developed on, on the committee, can they be applied to emerging sectors such as electric vertical takeoff and landing or will you have to develop a new committee for or to, to adapt these standards? I don't think that's a question of can they because they are currently being used on on a number of of current programs with with uh, startup companies who are working on EV tile aircraft. Also, uh, we have another subcommittee. I mentioned S18H, but S18A is the other active subcommittee we have today. And they they are uh, S18A uh, are working on autonomy and and UAS, uncrewed airborne systems. Basically, the, the document that they are developing at the moment, which is an AIR document, um, is looking at the gaps between the current guidance that's given in 4754, 4761, and what would be required for 
the uh, for, for for the more autonomous operation and and for UAS operation and, and AAM. Um, so we're working on that today. But the the current material in forty seven fifty four is being used as as we speak in in the uh, in, in the, the programs that are, are currently underway and and the uh, that have been basically through 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 a, a type application with with the FAA. Wow. Then. And then I'm taking that as technology continues to evolve, will new committees stand up? Will, will new standards be developed as technology we couldn't even imagine today be, becomes a reality? Or is it going to be the FAA calls, hey, Steve, hey, Andy, we see this going, technology here. We need your expertise. Both. Both. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're already working with with 4754B, 4761A now with uh, with. Uh, the Aerospace Council for their final review, um, and those documents should, should be produced and, and published this year. The, the committee are now working on additional AIR work products in, in areas such as uh, the uh, common cause errors and uh, model-based models and, and tools for, for model-based use. And I'm trying to think what the other the, the other one is we're working on. But yeah, so we're working in, in other areas. And in, in addition, if the FAA come up with a, a, a request for us to, uh, to to look at something, then yeah, we will consider that as a proposal for, for future committee work within S18, or we would direct them to another committee that's, uh, that's working in, in that area. I'd like to add as well for the EVTOL or advanced air mobility in, in UAVs, the drones, I was I helped launch S18A as one of the co-chairs. I, I've just recently stepped back from that. I'm retired, and it's hard to support it, uh, the leadership role when you're retired. But what we've done there is we've identified six gaps, and these gaps are things that the ARPs don't really address, or there's assumptions behind the ARPs that are maybe inconsistent with these new types of aircraft and new types of operations. And so with our AIR, we're going to describe these gaps and what the questions or issues are. And then we expect we're going to launch another document to go tackle one or more or maybe all six of those gaps. And so we have to uh, as we get the AIR completed, get ready on some proposal to pursue another document. I don't know if it'll be another aerospace information report or if it will rise to the level of an aerospace recommended practice. That might remain to be seen yet. Steve, from the S-18A point of view, are there standards around, let's just take an unmanned aircraft that's going to carry humans, but you have to have a certain amount of technology is all that being laid out there, or if perhaps we're going to remove one pilot to test this, but instead of having two pilots, we'll have one pilot. Is all of that stuff being worked through in the community, if you want to call it the, the transition phase and what that's going to eventually look like? What we're finding is that the kinds of missions, even the different eVTOL companies you see in the news today, their aircraft and their operations all vary somewhat. They don't have the consistency that, say, commercial transport aircraft has, you see at the airports, or even rotorcraft uh, who have a more consistent set of operations. So there's, there's a huge variability in what's happening. So we can't work any one specific problem, but we're trying to define a guidance or a framework on how to identify, here's your issues, and get people to really capture their operations and say, well, which 
systems or even the aircraft versus ground station does those functions to support your operations. So the architectures are very different. The allocations between the air and the ground are different. The life cycles are going to even be different. You know, you might have one ground station that maybe someday in the future could be certified to operate many aircraft of even different types. And all those aircraft come from somebody else. So there's these kinds of things that we don't know the answers to yet. We're identifying the gaps that we foresee having to tackle. It sounds to me, you, along with Andy and the rest of your committee members, you have a lot of stuff to think through on on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we, we meet quarterly, but there's calls every week. Some, you know, will take a topic and they'll work it, you know, maybe every other Wednesday or something or different cadence to each of the different problems. But Things are not quiet between the quarterly meetings. Andy, what Steve got me fascinated now what he described with the emerging air mobility. Are you going? So a lot of the EV tall companies they're going to be, they're going to run electric. When the committee work, are you looking the whole way down that supply chain well? If though p- plugging in the EV tall, what does it look like? Are you looking at the whole ecosystem? Because when I go to an airport today, commercial airport. There's an ecosystem of operation where you have the the individual on the tarmac that's moving the plane in, moving the plane out. You have the tugs, and it's all highly orchestrated and highly safe. Those are all meet standards. Will the same thing happen with emerging air mobility as well? Well, you you mentioned uh, the the electric aircraft. There's certainly committees that are working on that, and that there's a a, a NASA uh, hosted. Um, forum that are, that are looking at operations of, of EV tolls and, and the, the whole AAM domain. So it's not all being worked by S18, certainly, but there, there is work ongoing uh, with, with industry and, and authority participation as we speak today on, on just that sort of thing. Right. We're looking at, at one small piece of this larger EV toll question. And there's also groups outside SAE as well, who've made huge contributions uh, in this area. We're just looking at development assurance and safety analysis and how do you apply this stuff where we have expertise in these new areas where there's a bunch of open questions. But the bottom line, Steve, is, is very simple and point blank. You're providing the input that's needed for this technology to scale safely. That's the bottom yes. bottom line with this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in a way, you could say the safety analysis methods might even be seen as a technology in and of themselves because it enables these other things. And that's what counts. That's why committees are are important. You play a very critical role. As I said earlier, you're not going from New York to California without safety standards and without the time dedication that individuals such as yourself give to the committees. Steve, in your opinion, what is the future of aerospace standards? I think we'll continue on this path that we're on and try and and share this knowledge and learn more. And there's going to be a lot of new things that come up. We have to keep evolving with the technology. There's a lot of economic drivers or research behind technologies that come in and open up new things we can do. And we need standards to keep up with that. But we need standards that work for people that aren't overly prescriptive, but give a good framework for people for the industry for the regulators. And, you know, one thing that people see when there's a standard, they might think, oh, no, that's going to be cumbersome and it's going to cost me more money and time to do that. I don't want to do that. And and I would say that these standards actually pay off, that 
at first, yeah, it's going to take some more work to get your stuff together and work through this stuff. But it pays off handsomely when you get into your test phase of the end of your project and you find all kinds of issues if you didn't apply these standards. And it's super costly with scheduled delays and millions or billions of dollars in economic impact. I'm not going to say this will capture all those problems, but it'll take out a huge chunk of those problems. I love the line, standards that work for people. I'm going to repeat that, Steve. Standards that work for people. Andy, you've got you've got a large mountain to climb here because Steve had that great line. In, in your opinion, Andy, what is the future of aerospace standards? I think there's always going to be a need for, uh, for aerospace standards. I think um, increasingly we're seeing that the regulatory authorities are reliant on the, the standards organizations uh, because uh, they, they have limited resources. They need to target their resources. They don't have sufficient time to, to come up with, with developing guidance for, for everything that's required. You mentioned earlier the, the, the advancing technologies on, on the eVTOL side, on um, electric, uh, all electric aircraft, all of these areas, autonomy, um, UAS, AEM, all those areas that, that they just don't have time themselves to, to provide all of the, the guidance. It's their role really to, to uh, provide the, the regulations. And, and so the standards organizations are being relied upon to to provide the guidance, which basically is is what industry has been doing and, and how industry see see that they should uh, they should continue operating in in the, the different domains, be it uh, be it an, on uh, airborne domain or, or be it the uh, the ATM ANS domain. Standards make the world go round. That's that's the bottom line. Standards make the world yeah. go round. Yeah, or at least true. it enables it. Andy, you mentioned earlier SAE Aerotech twenty four coming up March twelfth to the fourteenth in Charlotte, North Carolina. A listener that said, "Wow, this is really insightful. I'm really interested." If they go to SAE Aerotech twenty four, can they meet you and Steve and learn more about the committee and get involved? Yeah, that there will be, uh, but be there'll even be a training course prior to the uh, to, to Aerotech in both ARP forty seven fifty four B forty seven sixty one A. Um, there'll be a panel discussion at Aerotech, and there'll be a number of technical sessions which are being hosted uh, by myself and, and my fellow uh, my fellow chairperson Tammy Reeves, basically on system safety. Um, development assurance, design assurance for, for software and airborne electronic hardware. Um, all, all of these areas will, will be discussed. There'll be uh, there'll be panels and so there'll be technical sessions. Fantastic on aerospace. What's your takeaway from this conversation? As I said to Steve, I learned a lot. But what would you like the audience to take away with them today, Andy? I'd, I'd like uh, I'd like the the audience to to understand that that it's available to them if if they, they they're interested they can either sign up for Aerotech or they can can contact uh, either Steve or myself or or any of the committee chairs to to get involved and and yeah just just get involved in in the committee work um it certainly helped develop uh, develop my understanding and help me in, in my day-to-day job without a doubt. Get involved, roll up your sleeves, join a committee. You will make a positive difference in the world. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is the S18 SAE committee. 
Andy, Steve, thank you so much for coming on SAE tomorrow today. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to SAE tomorrow today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today Unplugged, where I'll share my thoughts and insights into markets and the future mobility. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.